today we are um, continuing in our series, Soul Detox. And um, I encourage you, if you haven't uh, been here for, uh, the last couple weeks, well, not last week, but the couple weeks before that, um, we have a podcast that we have all of our uh, sermons on, and I, I'd encourage you to listen to those. This is our last week in this series, and we actually have a guest preacher, um, Heidi Weaver-Smith. Uh, she's a part of our community. She um, has led small groups, and she's on our finance team and just offers a lot of leadership in our community. She's actually, um, she has, a, she has uh, attended seminary um, and done some Masters of Divinity classes, not Masters of Divinity, Masters of Theological Studies. Um, and so she um, has this, uh, some theological education and she's a great speaker and uh, we really uh, value her um, wisdom and all that she brings to this community. And so she is going to be, um, be our teacher this morning. So thank you, Heidi. It's far too glowing of an introduction. <laughs> Good morning. I'm not this short. There we go. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found pleasing to you. Guide us this morning as we talk about some hard topics and give us your grace and your wisdom, Lord. Amen. So first time I'm preaching a sermon here, and uh, the, the topic I get is hate. <laughs> oh, goodness. So it's going to be a fun ride, y'all. <laughs> well, so have you ever noticed something in your life lurking sort of beneath the surface, maybe? Impacting your relationships, your self-esteem, your view of God. These are the things that we're talking about in this series called Soul Detox. These these things that have robbed us of a life well-lived, that have crept in and are destroying our souls. Nowadays, the word detox can mean lots of things. Um, before the term was sort of co-opted by the recent craze of health um, initiatives and online products and plans and TV ads, the word detox really talked about a medical process of ridding your body of poisons and chemicals that threatened your life. And so I think it's fair to say that patients going through detox do not enjoy the process. Um, it's not pleasant. Sometimes our bodies might even sort of groan in rebellion as we recalibrate and find a better normal. So we've talked about so far shame and unforgiveness, and today we're, we're just going to have a little, little casual chat about hate. <laughs> and so as I was preparing this talk, I, I began reflecting on the ways that I participated with hate in my own life, the moments I've, I've accidentally paved the way, sort of unintentionally, for hate to reign in our world. Uh, whether through my indifference, my laziness, my dismissal of the sufferings of others. I call this idle hate because it's not something we really try. It just sort of shows up on its own, right? Like hate is such a big thing. We can sometimes think like, oh, I don't hate anyone. Like I don't actively want to destroy somebody, right? <laughs> so I'm not sure it applies to me, but I really think there are these little things called idle hate. I also want to talk about the moments that, um, there are moments I reflected on that I've allowed hate to just sort of gradually build in my heart as I've nursed resentment or contempt. And I call these hate sprinkles, <laughs> just little pieces of hate that come on into our lives. And then the times when I've learned and I've leaned right into my own anger and bitterness, and I've participated with all my heart, hating somebody who has hurt or violated me or hurt or violated somebody that I've loved. And I call this fiery hate. So, but before we get to all of that, 
<clears throat> I want to take just a quick survey of Scripture, right? So as I was preparing, I started to think, what, what does the Bible say about hate? Is there some things that we should hate? Are there things that we ought to hate? Um, what are the things that, that maybe God hates? Um, and, and what does that tell us about what we ought to hate and what we ought not to hate? So here's, a, here's a, just a quick survey, um, not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. Things that, some things that God hates. God hates the enemies of Israelites. He hates the way that people worship other gods, like through child sacrifice. He hates idols and idol worship, all who do wrong, those who love violence, the wicked, meaningless, worthless offerings and worship. He hates bloodshed. He hates Esau, apparently. I don't that's another sermon, y'all. <laughs> um, he hates pride, lying, and violence toward the innocent. He hates wicked and evil schemes, divisive conflict creators. And he hates those who plot evil and swear falsely. And so with a theme that kept coming up in Scripture as I looked at hate in the Bible was that God really hates wickedness. He hates evil, and he hates what it does in our world, right? And so some of the things that we should hate... Um, include evil and wick wickedness, falseness and lying, bribes and greed, robbery and wrongdoing. Um, he even says we ought to hate our family in comparison to God. Again, another sermon. That's some of the strong language is hard sometimes to swallow. But he even says that we should hate our life and our work in this world compared to God. But the things that we aren't supposed to hate, <laughs> we're not supposed to hate God or Jesus. <laughs> I hope you guys know that one already. <laughs> um, and by the way, you'll be punished to the third or fourth generation. <laughs> um, we're not supposed to hate our fellow Israelites. Also doesn't really apply, but important to note. Um, we're not supposed to hate knowledge. It makes us a fool. Don't hate correction. It makes you stupid and you will die. Don't you love how blunt Proverbs is? <laughs> don't hate your brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't even hate your enemies. So hate is defined as an intense or passionate dislike for someone or something. And so there's some, there's some things we're supposed to hate, right? And so like, as I was looking through scripture, I was like, okay, good. Like the, when I get really angry about evil in the world, like that's okay. I'm supposed to be angry about that, right? Like God says to hate wickedness and thing is evil. But I think hating someone is, hating someone or something is more than just an intense or passionate dislike. I think it's when you want someone or something to no longer exist in the world. You just want to wipe them or wipe it off the face of the planet. Or, or if you're okay maybe with them existing, at least you want their existence to be filled with failure and misery, right? Have you ever wished that on someone? We might know somebody, there might be somebody in our own lives that we hate. It might be somebody we don't know. It could, it could even be an ideology. Sometimes we can even hate ourselves. Hate is such a, a big thing that I think we often don't notice it as it's creeping in. So let's talk a little bit about what idle hate and hate sprinkles and fiery hate could look like and what might God say to us about each of those types of hate in our lives. So first of all, idle hate. Idle hate is the ways that we allow hate to reign in the, in the world through our indifference, our laziness, or dismissal of the sufferings of others. Ellie Weisel famously said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Edmund Burke says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, right? We're familiar with these phrases. It's fitting to talk about hate today because this past week was Martin's King Day. 
And MLK is famously known for his call to nonviolent resistance, his call to defeat hate with peaceful action and interrupting the cycle of evil once and for all. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. He's also said, I've chosen to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And he said, um, this, this one quote I really wanted to share with you all, the basic question which confronts the world's oppressed is how is the struggle against the forces of injustice to be waged? There are two possible answers. One is resort to the all-too-prevalent method of physical violence and corroding hatred. The danger of this method is its futility. Violence solves no social problems. It merely creates more and new and more complicated ones. To retaliate with hate and bitterness would do nothing but intensify the hate in the world. Along the way of life, someone must have a sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. This can be done only by projecting the ethics of love to the center of our lives. MLK speaks about the way that we are to direct our focus against the forces of evil rather than against people who are creating evil. He implies that victims of violence are, are not the only victims of evil. Hey, even the perpetrators of evil are victims of violence. Living in opposition to hate means that we have to be a people of action, but not people of violent action. There's no way for God's kingdom to come while his people sit idly by and allow what evil will happen to happen. On the other hand, Responding with violence for violence destroys the very peace that we are hoping for. Being people of God where hate does not have a home in us means that we have to be willing to enter that fray, willing to speak and act against hatred and violence thriving in our world. The witness of scripture and the example of Jesus paint a really clear picture for us on this, y'all, where those in power ought to speak up for and act on behalf of those who are marginalized. Our faith ought not to make us uh, uh, more bitter or more callous. It ought to make us more tender, more disturbed, more selfless, more concerned for the fate of others. It will form us into people of action. It will call us away from lives of idleness where we stand by as hate lives and grows in our world. First John 3 puts it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He did something in action, in nonviolent action. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Living on as nice folks. <laughs> while not doing much for those around you who are suffering or hurting or being dealt hatred, isn't love, my friends. Hate sprinkles. <laughs> These are little seedlings of hate, if you will, little smatterings that kind of work them way, their way into our lives very easily. But these toxic sprinkles can turn into a nightmare. These are things like disgust, resentment, hostility, contempt. You know, it doesn't take much. Maybe you felt them on the way here this morning. <laughs> right? It doesn't take much for them to fill our lives. These are sort of flashes in the pan, momentary quick emotions that um, will usually fade and subside, but things like rage and frustration and exasperation with someone you love, maybe. 
we usually limit our ration of these types of hate sprinkles, right? Like we can talk ourselves out of it. We can like talk ourselves down into a less hate sprinkly diet. And we know that like just eating some sprinkles all the time is probably not healthy. We probably need to fill our lives with other things. But sometimes we accidentally indulge too much in it. Anger, hostility, disgust, these things can grow and spread. And before you know it, you're swamped. You're stuck in it. I've been there. And, you know, before we know it, we're stuck in this sort of persisting anger state. So a couple of weeks ago, I was preparing to go on a trip out of town and finish um, and doing some uh, laundry to get ready and, um, you know, just trying to get everything all set to go. And um, so, so hustling around the house, taking care of things. And, you know, in our house, Stephen is the laundry doer. Stephen is my husband. And he's also a very good sport because he's letting me make sermon illustrations out of him. So Stephen is the laundry doer. I tend to be the laundry folder. And so, um, but we had gotten behind a little bit and there were some things I needed to be ready for my trip. And so I went wandered down the scary basement into our scary laundry room and <laughs> was moving the, the laundry over from the washer to the dryer. And um, as I'm doing this and hustling about, I'm about to start the dryer and I stop and I go, wait a second, there's something I should do before I start the dryer. What is it? Anyone? What do you do before you start the dryer? Oh, I heard it. I heard it. You check the lint trap. Right! You checked the lint trap, and so I opened it up, and what did I find in our lint trap? I found, I'm not even joking, it was like a two-inch thick layer of lint in our lint trap. <laughs> now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, Heidi, it's so nice that you have a husband who helps out with chores around the house, you know? How nice it for you. Um, and that's, that is what I should have been thinking, right? That is not what I was thinking. Um, my little hate sprinkles came dumping in all around me. <laughs> and I, you know, found a way to justify it, going through my whole, he's going to burn the freaking house down <laughs> moment. And, um, you know, my husband is, is, for those of you who know Stephen, he is um, per, as close to perfect as they come. I really have no complaints. But um, but not perfect, <laughs> and, and failing to empty the lint trap is one of the things that he sometimes forgets to do. But, you know, for me, I had my sense of sensible outrage, right? Like, the reason why I knew I was right to be mad and to be bitter about it and to be annoyed and frustrated, and before you know it, it's contempt. And, you know, maybe for you, it's not dryer lint or your spouse that, that triggers it at times. Maybe it's the guy who cuts you off in traffic on your way to church when you're late already. Maybe it's your roommate who never, ever, 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 ever does the dishes. Maybe it's your best friend who you've been longing to reconnect with and they're just checking their, fo their phone the entire time you're trying to talk to them. Or maybe it's your adult child who never returns your phone calls. I don't know who it is for you that triggers it, that triggers that resentment. But you know what? Sometimes it doesn't even take somebody in our lives. Sometimes it's just a news article, right? Here's a few that might trigger some hostility from the last year. Right? How many of us felt like, Ugh, from one of those? 
that eye roll or that (laughs) outrage feeling, that seriously, (laughs) that's called contempt. Contempt and hostility are the seedlings of hate. Dr. John Gottman, a world-renowned researcher on marriage stability, has actually found a way to predict with 90% accuracy whether and how quickly a couple will divorce based on what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) I know, isn't that aptly named? The worst among them, contempt. Contempt for one another. Contempt breeds hatred. St. Augustine is famously known to have said that hatred is nothing else than persevering anger. Hatred is nothing else than persevering anger. You guys, the only thing that you need to do to become hateful is to stay angry. It's pretty easy. Nurse your wounds until they grow into disgust, resentment, hostility, contempt, and then bada bing, bada boom, you've got hate. It starts so little, but it grows so easily. And so what do we do with these sprinkles of hate and contempt? Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all of your bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we've talked about idle hate and hate sprinkles. I need a drink of water before we get to fiery hate. (laughs) I probably really don't have to define fiery hate for you all. It's pretty clear. It's that stuff that is big, all-consuming, hot, angry, scalding. As I reflect on the moments when I've hated somebody or when I've been hated, there are some really big hurts that come to mind. Maybe they do for you too. Maybe there are times when you felt violated, betrayed, silenced, treated unfairly, or discarded. We all have them. I think sometimes hatred doesn't just grow little. Sometimes it just sort of bulldozes right into our lives when we or someone we know is mistreated. And I think really there's two sort of things that happen when that kind of hatred explodes into our lives. I think it happens when we feel helpless and we are violated. Fiery hate is really easy to spot. When you've been violated or dehumanized by somebody, hate will come on abrupt. It will come on hot. It is big. It is clear. There is no question about what is going on in your heart. It is angry and loud There's no gray territory. It's clear, big, fiery hate. And when we feel helpless to protect ourselves or someone that we love, and they suffer mistreatment, hate runs hot. Celebrated theologian and philosopher Miroslav Volf shares a story in his book, The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World, um, which I recommend to any of you who are dealing with unforgiveness or hate. It's a great book. 
remembering rightly in a violent world, how he endured a sort of Truman Show-like existence for several years. Um, Miroslav was a Christian theologian married to an American, and he was drafted at the time into the then Yugoslavian communist army, army, where his fellow soldiers were actually recruited to spy on him because they suspected him of being an infidel. And so every word that he said was unbeknownst to him recorded and monitored. And and so one day he was finally summoned into a security officer's office, who he calls Captain G. And while he was in Captain G's office, he encountered a 12-inch, that's not 12 inches, 12-inch thick file of everything he had said and done, photographs of him going into town and visiting different stores, um, recordings, things he thought he had said in private to friends and confidants, all of these things supposedly proof of his subversive intentions that he was a spy and that threat going to try to overthrow the regime. And so week after week, he was interrogated, threatened to be thrown into prison for years on end unless he conf- confessed, quote, everything. And he describes the mental torment that he faced, the terror that the officers and generals put into his heart over a period of months, the helplessness, the humiliation that he felt suffering in this torment, the mental abuse, this anguishing cat-and-mouse game that he felt he was just set up to lose. And at the end of all, it just sort of stopped. And he was told he could go free, but that he should be grateful for the way he had been treated given the situation how easy it is for our abusers to tell us that. Afterwards, he recounts how Captain G seemed to follow him around in his everyday life, continuing this mental torment and torture, even after it had passed, years after it had passed, lurking around every corner, showing up in dark and fearful moments for him. Wolf says in his book, I don't know what my interrogator felt for me, but I felt absolutely no love for him. Only cold, enduring anger that even vengeance, if it were possible, would not alter. But I sensed, maybe more subconsciously than consciously, that if I gave in to what I felt, I would not be responding as a free human, but I would be reacting to a wounded animal. The more severe the wrongdoing, the more likely we are to react rather than respond, to act towards wrongdoers the way that we feel like acting rather than the way we should act. So what do we do with this big stuff, this big hate? Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray even for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain onto the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your, he- as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage is out of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the longest continuous discourse we have from Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Uh, one of my favorite commentary, uh, commentators from the mid-1600s is Matthew Henry, and he points out that the whole of this sermon is really concerned much, much less with what to believe, which we call orthodoxy, and much more with what to do, which we call orthopraxy. 
So obviously we know that it's wrong to hate most things. It's wrong to hate people. But we don't really need to be convinced of that, right? We know that's wrong. But what we need to know is what, what now? What do we do with that? What happens when it just comes into our lives without us trying? Jesus says to expand the notion of love beyond the boundaries that people p- typically adhere to it. Before, in the Old Testament days, and according to the Levitical laws of the Old Testament, it was okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus, when he came, said it's time to expand our vision of what my kingdom coming will mean. There is more. There is better than we are settling for. Jesus was the model of loving not just friend but enemy. Romans 5 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might might possibly dare to die. But God, and that's the key, but God, that's not the way God does things. He demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You know, I'm, when I think about the example of Jesus, I'm really, um, the best word I could come up for it was flummoxed. I'm flummoxed because we have a God who, and he rose from the dead after a brutal death. He didn't go tell somebody else the good news. He stayed. <laughs> he stayed with the people who had killed him and shared his good news with the very people who had killed him. Who does that? <laughs> right? I don't. <laughs> he, <clears throat> among his first acts, he proclaimed the good news, eternal life, union with God, resurrection and salvation to his very enemies, to those who had destroyed him. And he is the reason why hate can have no place in the heart of a believer. I'm going to say it again for those in the back. Hate can have no place in the heart of a believer. Okay? I don't know what you've been through. (laughs) I don't know who it is that's done something to you that has really hurt and violated and destroyed you or someone you love. But hate cannot be the answer. 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not, remain, who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is, is like a murderer. You know that murderers have no eternal life residing in them. And so this is how we know what love is, is that Jesus laid down his life for us. We know we are believers because we love. That's our testimony to the world. That we refuse to hate even those who have wronged us. That's actually the mark of a believer. They will know we are Christians by our... Right. They will know we are Christians by our love, not by our vengeance, not by our moral outrage, not by our righteous anger not by any of those things. They will know we are Christians by our love. They will know we are Christians because we love when others would have hated. We cannot hate because we are not haters. That is not who we are. Because we understand what it means that love conquered death. And love must conquer the death in your lives, in my life, in all of our lives. It must conquer the hate in our lives. 
We cannot be filled with love and filled with hate at the same time. We, can't, we can do the same thing that Jesus did. We can turn and give that love to others as well, even those who don't deserve it. Our ability to defeat hate in ourselves and in the world is contingent on our receiving of God's love. When we receive that love, it changes us. When we find that we ourselves at God's mercy, undeserving of it, and we recognize that we have been given that gift, there is no way that we can fully receive that gift and allow hate to live in our heart. They just can't go in the same box, y'all. So I wonder where it is for you, whether it's idle hate or toxic hate sprinkles or toxic fiery hate that you've got to get rid of that is reigning in your heart and your life. Have you been hurt? Have you been violated? Your trust betrayed? Feeling helpless in the midst of violation or injustice? Or even just piles of lint in the dryer? It's eating away at the core of love in your life. It is interrupting your ability to be filled with God's changing love. And so I invite you, let go of it. Let go of it. And let God's love reign in your hearts. I want to take a few minutes to practice a prayer with you all. This is called the um, prayer of examine. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up in a moment. We're going to we're going to participate in this ancient practice called the prayer of examine. And so the prayer of examine is a great way to let your heart be filled with God's love and presence. Um, so if you would just close your eyes with me and um, Nick's going to play his music for us. And I just want to invite you to have a moment with God to reflect on this and hear his voice and his presence and discern his direction for us. And so Just take a moment and become aware of God's presence. This practice is actually for the last 24 hours, so just daily kind of do this. So as you look back on the past 24 hours and just settle into the company of the Holy Spirit and just ask him to show you, to clear your mind of the blur, the jumble, the muddle of the last 24 hours and bring you clarity and understanding. Just sit with that for a moment. As you think back over the past 24 hours, I invite you to just review that those moments with gratitude. Gratitude is the foundation of our relationship with God. And so walk with him through that day. Walk with him and ask. Take notice of the works that, that he did. Look at the things that you did and the people that you interacted with. Pay attention to even the small things like the food you ate, the things you saw, small pleasures. God is in the details. you think through the last 24 hours. Think about what emotions you experience, the, the highs and the lows, 
particularly reflect on if there were any moments where you felt resentment or anger or hatred throughout the last 24 hours. Moments maybe where you felt helpless or violated or even indifferent to the sufferings of others. Just give God a moment to ask him what he might say to you through those feelings that you've experienced. As God brings something to mind, choose that one thing and as a feature of your day that he's brought to mind and just pray through it. Ask the Holy Spirit to direct you to what that moment should be and whether that feeling is a positive or negative thing that you experience or a significant and vivid moment of pleasure or peace or whether it's a a difficult memory or thought. Look at it. Just pray about it and allow Allow God to to show you whether intercession, praise, repentance, gratitude, what the, the next step is. you to look towards tomorrow and the things ahead. Ask God to give you light for tomorrow's challenges. Pay attention to feelings that you're feeling as you think about starting the new week. Cheerful, apprehensive, stressed, doubtful, angry, and just allow those feelings to turn you to prayer and seek God's guidance for the week ahead and pray for hope. I want to invite you to pray with me this this final prayer. And I before we pray this prayer together that, that you'll see up here on the screen in just a moment, I, I just want to say whatever it is, that God brought up to you during that quiet moment. Just don't do it alone, you know? If you're hurting, join a small group. Talk to a friend. Um, Ask one of us to pray for you after the service. Um, See a counselor and spend time in prayer. The daily prayer of examine is a great sort of, I, I like to do it before bed when I can remember to do it. Just ask God to show me where the moments were that I felt his presence in the moments when I didn't and what he would say to me through that. Um, If you just Google prayer of examine, (laughs) you'll be able to find a format that you can take with you to even help you reflect on the moments where you feel hatred or hurt. So let's, let's, as we close, let's sing, uh, let's uh, pray this prayer together. This is um, an ancient prayer um, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Join me. Lord, Make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred.
Thanks so much, Heidi. Boy, it's been a, a great day of worship. We're so glad that you uh, were able to join us. Um, God did some really just amazing things here. Um, and uh, uh, I think gratitude is definitely the best response. So thanks so much for being here. We hope that you'll come back next week. Um, uh, we've got some special things planned next week. And uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of exciting things in the next coming weeks as we move toward. If you do two services. So this is uh, concludes our service today. Um, we encourage you to hang out. Um, if you do hang out, hang out on that half of the room because we're going to set this half of the room up for our next step event. If, uh, if you want to hang out uh, for that, you're welcome to stick around. Thanks a bunch. Have a great week.